Good morning again, and to those of you online with us, we're glad you're here as well. So we're in a series, week two of Exiles, walking through the, the book of First Peter and really dealing with the question of who are we? What is our identity? Because Peter begins his letter by proclaiming that these are the exiles. They are God's chosen people, the elect. But they are exiles, a people who do not belong. And, and really, they're dealing with the question and the problem, what do you do when things get really difficult? What, what do you do in your life when things get hard? Uh, I had a, actually a couple of conversations last week um, with, with a few people following our, our time um, who said, you know, we're in a profession, um, and I'll, I'll just, a couple of them were, were nurses, um, a couple were um, teachers. We're in professions where it's gotten really, really difficult, and they can relate to the whole ministry thing right now. It, and it's gotten difficult, and the question is, well, what do we do? Because like our default is typically, well, things get difficult. Well, obviously God is probably trying to tell us something. And so if things are getting difficult, then we probably need to step out of the situation or the profession that we're in. Because that's God's sign to us. But, but here's what we need to understand. is just because things get difficult, it does not by any stretch of the imagination mean God is using that as a way to tell you to get out. Things get difficult because life is difficult. Things get difficult simply because life is difficult. You will always have to deal with hardships. And life is a series of ups and downs. And, and I think this is really what the church that, that Peter is, the churches that Peter is writing to is trying to figure out. Hey, things are getting, we decided to follow Jesus and things are getting really, really difficult. What do we do? Do, do we like leave the city and go live as monks in the desert? Do, do we need to, to back off and form our own just kind of exclusive community of people who, who don't get to be a part? Do we kind of just blend in and be like everyone? How do we live in a culture, in a world that becomes more and more difficult? What do we do? Because as we talked about last week, when trouble comes, our identity is the first thing we start to question. When trouble, when hardship comes, the very first thing we start to do, and sometimes I think it happens subconsciously, and, and it doesn't even enter our cognitive thoughts, but we start to question who we are. We start to question what we're doing. We start to question where God is in all of this, and how He is working, and is He a part of this? We start to question our very identity. So, I'm going to put a word on the screen. And I want you, this is your chance to talk in church, okay? Out loud. Just yell out, okay? The very first thing that comes to your mind when you see this word. Here you go. Great, great job yelling out. Thank you. So, God... How many people said God? Jesus? Anyone have another answer? Spirit? Set apart? Okay, don't talk about that. Um, no. 
how many people said me? Not, not me, me. You, you. Did anyone just think, that's me, I'm holy? That's not typically what we think of, right? When we hear the word holy. But Peter is trying to build identity into these churches who are living in really difficult times. And, and so when we think of holy, typically we think of the things that we do. We think of moral perfection. We say God is holy. And in our mind, I think that means God is morally perfect. That, that's our idea. And so moral perfection for us is something we understand is probably not in the cards. Probably not something we are capable of. Of doing, living a morally perfect life. And, and so here's what Peter says, starting in verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Jesus is coming back, and I don't, when, when times get difficult, don't forget it. I, I want your mind to be fixed on that. Remember that Jesus went through this incredibly difficult, hard life, and he came out on the other side of death, resurrected, and one day he's coming back. And I want you to set, I, I want that to remind you, I want that to be the guide for your life, this reminder that Jesus is coming back, that he has risen from the dead, and he is coming back. Verse 14, he says this, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires. It sounds really similar to Romans 12, right, with Paul. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, verse 16. But, or, sorry, yeah, 16. Be holy, because I am holy. All right, it is written, be holy. Because I am holy. Now, now, for me, that sounds like one of those things, because of the way I think of holy, that sounds like one of those things that just is impossible. Like, that, that's something. Because, right, when we see the word holy on the screen, me is not the, the first response. It, it's not the first thing. But, but Peter tells these Christians, I want you to be holy, just as the one who called you is holy. I want you to be holy in all that you do. And this group is struggling so much with their identity, I think, because of the difficulty they're facing in life. All right? Jesus is coming back. Fix your mind on that. Be holy. All right? What he means is not be perfect. Right? Because that's how we think. Right? Be perfect. But just in case you're not, there is the grace of Jesus that covers you. Holiness in our mind is what we do. Holiness is not who we are. Holiness is what we do. But, but I want you to look with me for just a minute. We're going to kind of look real quickly at some verses from the Old Testament. So that the word in Hebrew is kadosh. It's used 407 times in the Hebrew Bible. The word agios is the Greek, 
It's used 217 times in the New Testament. But I want to kind of walk through and look at the word holy just real quickly. Genesis 2, the very first time it's used. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he rested from all the work of creating that he had been doing. It's a day that God makes holy. There's a day that is holy. Exodus 3. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So there's a day. Now he calls the ground holy. Exodus 15. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. So now it's a a dwelling place that is holy. And then the last one. Exodus 19. You will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So, so it's interesting here. God is calling things holy, right? A day, the very ground that Moses is standing on, a dwelling place, and a nation. And then just a little bit later in Leviticus, he says this. Um, Leviticus 10. You and your sons are not able to drink wine and other fermented drinks whenever you go into the tent of meeting, or you will die. This is the lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Verse 10. So that you can distinguish between the holy and the common. Between the clean, unclean and the clean. Right? And in the temple specifically, there was a division. There were places that you were not allowed to go. This was the holy place and the most holy place because there was this separation. Then in the New Testament, it's really interesting that that one of the most messed up churches we see probably is Corinthians. And Paul begins his letter to this church in Corinth by saying, to you the holy ones. To you the holy ones. But when we think about holy our self is not the first thing that pops into our mind. Oh, oh, that, that's me. I am a holy one of God. But, but as a couple of people said, holy simply means set apart. Holy is not moral perfection. Holy means it has been set apart for a specific purpose. Someone, something, a day, the ground, a dwelling place, a nation have been set apart from the common. They've been set apart from everything else. Now think about this in the way, we've, we talked about sin several times for the last several weeks in the last series we did. Right? Sin, most of the time we think is what? The bad stuff that we do. All of the bad things. But sin in the, the Hebrew is kata, in the Greek is hamartia. And it just simply means to fail or miss the goal. Right? What was the goal? That we would bear the image of God in this world. That people would see us and they would know what God is like. Right? That you would be set apart. That you would be different from everyone else on the wor- in the world. Those who bear His image. But see, here's the thing. Is God's intention 
was for every living, breathing person in creation to bear His image and to be set apart. But the problem is sin. Our failure to resemble and look like Jesus. See, what, what sin does, sin grabs hold of humanity and it leads it in a direction God never intended by stripping away our set-apartness. I made that word up myself. <laughs> by stripping away our set-apartness. God said, you are set-apart. You are holy. Right? You, you bear my image. You are set-apart from the rest of creation. And what sin does is it steps in and it tries to pull away that set-apartness. One of my favorite videos ever. Okay, This is from a, a show that, that many of you have seen a long time ago, Candid Camera. Okay? And I want you to watch this, this brief clip. The gentleman in the elevator now yeah. is a candid star. These folks who are entering, the man with the white shirt, the lady with the trench coat, and subsequently one other member of our staff, will face the rear. And you'll see how this man in the trench coat <laughs> maintain his individuality, but little by little, he looks at his watch, but he's really making an excuse for turning just a little bit more to the wall. Now we'll try it once again. Here's the candid subject. Here comes the candid camera staff, three of them at least. And uh, this man has apparently been in groups before. <laughs> now, here's a fella with his hat on in the elevator. First, he makes a full turn to the rear, and Charlie closes the door. A moment later, we'll open the door. Everybody's changed positions. <laughs> now we'll see if we can use... Now we'll see if we can use group pressure for some good. Now, in a moment, on Charlie's signal, everybody turns forward. Notice, they take off their hats. And now, do you think we could reverse the procedure? Watch. So, so how do we live a set-apart life in a world that is intent on blending in? How do we live a set-apart life, a holy life? If that is our identity, if that is who we are, we are these set-apart people, how do we live a life that is set-apart? And the, the question is, do you really want to be set-apart? Do you really want to look different than the rest of the world? Because I'll, I'll just be honest, there's a lot of times that the idea of that looks pretty appealing. 
I mean, it's just what everyone else is doing. But, but I want to remind you Peter's words. Like, I want you to fix your mind on the fact that Jesus is coming back. And I want you to follow Him and allow Him to transform who you are. I want you to own your set-apartness. Because sin is doing its best to strip you of it. To make you forget because you want to fit in, because you want to be a part. And so he says this um, in, in verse um, we at? 17. Since you call on the Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And for me, that's been one of those things I've always really struggled with. Like, how do we live our lives in reverent fear? What does that even look like? The, the, the thing I thought about, and, and the word here in, in Greek is phobos. It just means really reverent fear, like profound respect. Um, when I was in elementary school, there was an umpire named Steve Plamermo, a major league umpire, and he tried to help a, a woman who was getting mugged outside of a baseball game one night when he was leaving the ballpark, and he was actually shot, and it paralyzed him. And so when I was in elementary school, they had a um, baseball card convention in honor of him, and my favorite team at the time, the Oakland A's, were in town. And they were, they were my favorite team, even though I grew up in Texas and Dallas. They were my favorite team because when I was really young, the Rangers were really bad. And we went to a game, and um, we sat back right behind the on-deck circle of Oakland, maybe like 14 rows up. And I, I, I think we paid like 10 bucks for those tickets. They were back when you could go to sporting events at like a reasonable cost. And by the, the sixth inning, like the game was like, way over. And everyone left. And they didn't really have ushers, so we could kind of kind of move down. And so like the next inning, we're like on row three. And by the end of the game, we're sitting like right here next to the on-deck deck circle. And this is back when Oakland had like Ricky Henderson and Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire. And I mean, just massive, massive men. And so I'm just sitting there as this young four, third, fourth, fifth grader, just like, oh my God. Goodness, I just, and I kind of fell in love with him. So one of my favorite players was Jose Canseco. And Jose was going to be signing autographs at this card show because all of the players from both teams agreed to sign autographs for everyone who wanted them for 20 bucks a piece, and all the proceeds were going to go to the Steve Plamermo thing to help him get better. And so I got to go to this card show, and I got to go stand face-to-face -face with Jose Canseco. Like, for, for a young boy who loved baseball, like, this was amazing. And I remember getting up next to Conseco, and, like, he's just sitting there, and, like, his arms. Like, and we know now that like, they're full of steroids, right? <laughs> Great role model. Um, just jack, jack, dude. And I'm just sitting here like, oh, my goodness. Like, my eyes are, like, this big. Like, I'm meeting one of my heroes. And, and there was this this kind of fear that came with it. Like, I cannot believe I'm in his presence. I can't believe that he's right here. And, and it, kind of, it kind of clicked for me with the whole idea of fear, right? Like, we're, we're standing here, and what he says is, I want you to live your reverent fear because of who Jesus is. And because of who he is, there should be some fear. Right? Because we understand the character of God. God is this just God, and He is a good judge. 
So, so like we understand his character, but more than that, we understand our character. The character to continually mess things up and to continually to fail to live up to the image that he has given us. To continue to be stripped of our set-apartness. Like we understand our character just as much as we understand his character. Because you understand your character and your tendency to continually be pulled away from the image that you were called to bear, you should live your life in fear of who God is. Because he is just and righteous and one day you're going to stand before him. One day you're going to give an account And so that's where the the spear comes in. Like you know who God is and you know who you are. And thankfully he doesn't end the letter right there. Right? Those aren't his his last words. Live your life in reverent fear. God's goal is to make you extra crispy. Right? That's not how he finishes. He says, You're these set apart people, holy. Live like it so that you would reflect the image of God. And then he says this, verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Um, Next verse. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Though, or through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. So that your faith and hope are in God. Why are your faith and hope in God? Because he ransomed you. Right? You understand who He is. You understand who He is as a judge. You understand who you are. But where that divide could not be met, where, where that divide could not be bridged, He steps in and He, it says, ransomed His own Son. He gave His Son to bring you back. And so Peter's declaration that you are to live a holy, set-apart life is not because, by any means, because of your moral perfection. It's not that you are holy because you are so good. It is you are holy because you have been bought, you have been paid for with a price. The price of the blood of the Lamb. It's through the cross that Jesus ransomed what sin has stolen from you. In school, you might have read the book Les Miserables. Um, Les Mis for short. You've seen the movie, at least. But it's a story of a man who becomes a hardened criminal named Jean Valjean. He actually finds himself in prison because he stole bread to feed a hungry family. And he finds himself in prison He tries to escape from prison and he's given a longer and longer sentence until finally he does escape. And so I want you to listen to just this little excerpt from Victor Hugo's Les Mis. This is just after Jean Valjean has been graciously given a room for the night by a priest in the town he is staying in. 
In the middle of the night, Jean Valjean wakes up from his sleep. He goes and he steals all of the silver, silverware from the priest's home. The priest confronts him. He hits him over the head and knocks him out and runs away with the silver. Just as the brother and sister, the, the priest and his wife, were getting up from the table, there was a knock at the door. Come in, said the bishop. The door opened. A weird and wild-looking bunch stood at the doorstep. Three men were holding a fourth by the scruff of the neck. The three were gendarmes. Just in French, that's the police. The other man was Jean Valjean, a sergeant of the Jean de Mir, who seemed to be the leader of the group, stood nearest to the door. He came in and strode over to the bishop, giving him a military salute. Monsignor, he began. At that, Jean Valjean, who looked glum and broken, lifted his eyes, startled. Monsignor, he murmured. So this isn't your local curé. Quiet, said one of the gendarmes. This is Monsignor, the bishop. But Monsignor Bienvenu had gone over to the men as fast as his old pens would carry him. Ah, there you are, he cried, looking straight at Jean Valjean. I'm glad to see you. But heavens, I gave you the candlesticks too. You know, they are made of silver, like the rest, and you can get 200 francs for them easily. Why didn't you take them with the cutlery? Jean Valjean's eyes nearly popped out of his head. He looked as the venerable bishop with an expression no human tongue could convey. Monsignor, said the sergeant, is this what this man said true? He was, we saw him hot-footing it out of town. He looked like he was on the run, so we arrested him to be on the safe side. He had all the silver, and he told you, the bishop broke in with a smile, that it had been given to him by some old codger of a priest whose place he had spent the night in. I can see how it looks. So you have brought him back here. There has been a misunderstanding. If that's the case, the sergeant said, can we let him go? You must, said the bishop. The gendarmes released Jean Valjean, who visibly shrank back. Are you really letting me go? He said in a voice that was barely articulate, as muffled as he were talking in his sleep. Yes. We're letting you go. Something wrong with your ears, said one of the gendarmes. My dear friend, said the bishop, before you go, here are your candlesticks. He went to the mantelpiece, swept up the two candlesticks, and handed them over to Jean Valjean. The two women watched the bishop without a word, without a movement, without a glance that might upset him. Jean Valjean's whole body was shaking. He took the two candlesticks automatically and with a stricken look on his face. Now, said the bishop, go in peace. Speaking of which, when you come back, my friend, there is no need to go through the garden. You can always come through the front door on the street. It is only ever on the latch, day and night. He turned to the policeman and said, gentlemen, you may go. The gendarmes headed off. Jean Valjean looked as though he were about to pass out. The bishop went over to him and said to him in a voice 
don't forget. Don't ever forget. To use the silver to make an honest man of yourself. Jean Valjean had no memory of ever having promised a thing. Remained stunned. The bishop had emphasized every word as he He went on with a kind of solemnity. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. Spirit, I am giving it to God. The priest says, with these candlesticks, with this silver, I'm forgiving you of what you have done, of what you deserve. I'm not holding you responsible. I'm allowing you freedom. Jesus ransoms your soul. Not with candlesticks, but with a cross. The soul that you sold to the desire for comfort or belonging or popularity or the insatiable desire for stuff. He ransoms you. He pays the price for your sin. And because of that, Peter says to you, you are holy. You are holy not because of what you have done. Because holy is not what you do. You are holy because what God has done for you. He has set you apart. He has made you holy. And so today, may you have the courage to go live and be what God has already declared you are. You are holy. Father, today, we thank You so much. And Father, I want to say a special prayer for those who sit in this room this morning and would say, I don't feel holy. Father, may they be reminded that it is not because of what they have done. It is not because of who they are. It is simply because of who You are and what You have done to ransom our soul. To buy us back from the sin that has stripped away our set-apartness. Father, today, may we proclaim Your goodness. And Father, may we celebrate Your lavish grace that has given us freedom. We thank You. And Father, once again, embrace our set-apart identity as the people of God. We thank You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our shepherds and their spouses are going to be in the back. If we could help you in any way, we would love to just put our arm around you, pray with you, pray over you. Um, If you've never given your life to Christ and, and found His love and embrace, we would love to talk with you as well about that. So, um, You're welcome to go to the back and find one of them as we sing. Let's stand.